I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton here, and today I'm with Sophie Howe, who is the Future Generations Commissioner for Wales. I've known Sophie for quite a long time. You're from Cardiff, aren't you, originally, Sophie? Yeah, I'm from Ely um, originally. I brought up in Ely in the, in the early 80s. Um, lived there until I went to university in, uh, in Cardiff when I moved to student land in, um, in Roth. But yeah, Cardiff girl through and through. What did you study at university? I studied law and politics. I'd always had an interest and a, and a passion in, uh, in politics and kind of public policy, I guess, and how public policy affected communities. And I guess that was through my dad's roots as a trade union um, activist. My mum was quite a passionate feminist, so I guess that informed um, a number of my views and continues to inform a number of my views. But yeah, so I was interested in, in politics. I wanted to become... A lawyer. I was first in my family to, to go to university, um, but I had an unplanned pregnancy whilst I was at university. The first of quite a few. The first of quite a few. Um, Although some of the others were probably planned. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's now he's now eighteen, um, but my pregnancy um, put the the kibosh on the uh, on my plans to become a lawyer, and uh, instead I I went to work for Julie Morgan. Uh, in her constituency office there doing the casework and that was something that I was quite passionate about solving people's problems identifying where those problems kind of were systemic they represented bigger issues that were going on in in society so helping people kind of individually but then how do you take that up to a bigger kind of more strategic policy context and try and make differences that are going to make an impact on people's lives and for a while you were a councillor as well yeah I was a councillor um I was became the youngest councillor in Wales I'd just uh, been selected to stand for the council just before I was found. I found out that I was pregnant, um, so that was all a bit uh, challenging at the time. So I fought the council election um, at I think six months pregnant and did my final university exam on the same day as election day, um, and and I won. And I I think that I probably wasn't expecting to win. I think I was kind of dipping my toe in the in the water in a bit. I. Been, I've been lucky to have a lot of encouragement from uh, you know people like like Julie who you know always been very passionate about getting more women involved in politics but I think I probably suffered from the imposter syndrome that a lot of women in particular suffer from which is you know actually am I good enough to do this and you know d- d- what do I know about being a counselor and actually when you when you get there what I think you realize is that the different views and perspectives that you can bring to that particularly as I, I guess I wasn't your stereotypical counsellor are actually just as important in some ways in more important than perhaps some of the traditional views that kind of um, exist in that world. Because um, that's an important point really isn't it because um, it doesn't just apply at local authority level it also applies to people who go to Westminster and for that matter mm-hmm. to uh, Cardiff Bay. It's very easy I think for people to succumb to the idea that uh, the institution is all powerful, and then it can dictate how things operate, and that people can very easily just get sort of sucked into being quite passive about things. But did you find that you had to be quite assertive? And 
to oh, get I, things across? I definitely had to be assertive. I think I had to work harder to gain credibility than perhaps someone who was, you know, older than me, perhaps a different um, gender to me. But actually, I also found that um, constituents actually really welcomed the fact I'd hear the the words of breath of fresh air, you know, quite a lot. And um, I think people valued the fact that there was a different face um, coming into this sort of representative role. And some of the issues that uh, that I took up, I took up because, you know, I knew in detail about them because I was experiencing them. So things like the lack of childcare, I can remember, um, you know, taking and running a big campaign about uh, nursery provision where there was some, uh, you know, mad council policy that required uh, parents to take an older school, uh, an older child to school in one area while simultaneously at the same time dropping off a, a nursery school child at you know, a different school three miles down the road. And that, for me, is something that I've always been really passionate about, actually understanding the lives that people lead um, and therefore developing our kind of policies and services around that. So unless you have a diverse range of people in there who are taking those decisions, who have those different types of, of understandings of those lives then I don't think you're necessarily going to get the best um, policy that, or services that, that work for people. Yes, and I think that you you then eventually got another role, didn't you? How much later was it when you became the, uh, the Deputy Police Commissioner? Um, that was in 2013, and again, you know, a big challenge for me, a challenge for, for lots of people going into um, policing um, as an outsider, if you like. Um, obviously, some scepticism about the role of police and crime commissioners more generally, but um, in my work as a counsellor and indeed in the things that I've become particularly passionate about in policy terms, so um, ending violence against women, um, you know, the role of um, you know, working together within communities around community safety, the role of the other kind of agencies in that. So not seeing this kind of approach of, you know, the police turning up, arresting people or moving gangs of, you know, young people on as being the thing that we should be doing, but actually bringing lots of different people together, say, actually, are we going to prevent these problems from occurring? What, why is it that the young people are hanging around, you know, breaking up the, the, the bus stop or, or what have you? And, and what, are, what can other agencies do to kind of um, help with that? And how do things need to join up? So those were the things that I was passionate about going into the, um, into the police service. But um, again, going into, I guess, an, you know, a male-dominated um, world as someone coming with some completely different perspectives on things. Chris Alan Michael, who was your boss, claims credit for the term which became popularised, particularly in the early part of the Blair government, tough on crime, tough on the causes of yeah. crime. Is that a, a philosophy that you go along with? I do go along with that philosophy, and I think that... Um, Alan is um, Alan is a bit of a, a force of nature. Alan is absolutely passionate um, about that, and I think some of that, interestingly, comes from his experiences of working as a youth worker in uh, in Ely back in the kind of seventies and and eighties. And you know, I think what we recognise is that people ending up in prison or ending up in the criminal justice system is the result of a often a long series of things that have gone wrong in their lives which where we could have um, and should have intervened in, a, in an earlier way in terms of what public services what public policy does you know those things could have been prevented so um, whilst you know we're in this position at the moment with policing aren't we with you know high levels of 
of demand, actually the demand has changed. So 70% of what the police are dealing with now is around vulnerability, not around crime. And we need to reflect on that in the changing nature, both of policing and I think in terms of broader public services. How do we respond effectively to that sort of vulnerability, these complex problems and issues that are going on in people's lives so that they're not ended up in the criminal justice system or in our hospitals or in our care homes or, you know, or whatever. In terms of the perennial problem of violence against women, mm. how do you think the um, police have changed their approach since you've been involved in the, the whole business? Um, I think they've become more <coughs> victim-centred. Certainly everything's not, not perfect and you know all police forces have got a long way to go there. But some of the, th the questions that I started asking is... If we know that um, uh, a woman, and you know, it's not always women, but uh, more often than not, the victim is uh, is a woman. If we know that she's experienced, uh, on average, thirty six incidents of domestic abuse before she even reports to the police. Thirty six incidents. Thirty six incidents before she even reports to the police. Now. That means that we need to be working with other people to identify um, what's going on there and to provide support. Uh, you know. Uh, way, way before she's experienced 36 incidents. And that means that that response may need to be outside of the police service. It's more likely to be GPs. It could be things like how do you skill up, and there's been some interesting programmes in, in, in other parts that we started looking at, hairdressers, in terms of you know those conversations that people are having and how you might be able to help and support them and direct them to where recognising that they might be in an abusive relationship and get, get help elsewhere. So some of the things that... That I did in, in, in policing was to um, invest a fair bit of money actually in programmes within health to identify at a much earlier point where um, domestic abuse was occurring. So in midwifery, where um, you know training programmes for, for midwives to spot domestic abuse. So we had a, a big increase in terms of the number of referrals um, that were happening there, and particularly in GPs, where um, when we start, when I started working there, I think in Cardiff there had been something like three or four referrals of domestic abuse from GPs, and I bumped into the uh, GP who was running the programme a couple of weeks ago, and I think she was on about 172 referrals now. So that means, I hope, that those 172 victims have not experienced 36 incidents of domestic abuse, but, again, but instead their issues are being spotted at a much earlier point. And then there's, you know, there's lots of things that we did around sexual violence in the, the nighttime economy, training for bouncers and door staff, staff and setting up help points so that we weren't having uh, vulnerable, often intoxicated people kind of wandering around and you know becoming vulnerable to, to sexual assault, unfortunately. So I'm proud of the work that we did there, but we've got you know definitely lots more to do. Because I, I remember over the years there have been stories that have uh, come out largely as a result of press releases, sometimes put out by the police themselves mm. and by uh, other agencies, about how on important sporting days mm -hmm. you can find a spike in domestic violence. Yeah. I mean, yeah. is that actually happening? Yeah, that does happen. It's not clear whether actually the link is the sporting event or the link is the fact that more alcohol is consumed around uh, sporting events. Um, but nevertheless, you know, and so some of the preemptive things that we started putting in place um, within South Wales Police around that were things like where we knew that there were particular perpetrators uh, in the run-up to those sorts of events, we would, uh, you know, pay a, uh, you know, I suppose a bit of a warning call, um, to, you know, to those to those uh, perpetrators, and you know, there's no one kind of silver bullet in terms of tackling uh, violence against women. 
you know, and, and is a very complex thing often when the victim themselves either doesn't recognise the abuse that they're suffering or um, for a range of complicated reasons can't leave that relationship. So what we need to do, however, is, uh, you know, what we needed to do as a police service was to have more tools in our toolbox rather than our response being we are police, we arrive, we arrest, we go through the criminal justice system. That's just one part of a, a solution and we need to be much more sophisticated in how we do things and that's what we were aiming to do. Why is it that in 2018 it is still such a big problem? Uh, I think it's to do with the fact that we perhaps haven't tackled gender stereotypes and sort of low-level harassment. So, um, you know, women regularly encounter kind of catcalling um, and those sorts of things on, on the street. That's not an offence. Um, if that sort of abuse was racist abuse or targeted at someone with a disability, it would be classed as a hate crime. Um, and I strongly believe that uh, misogyny should be made a, a hate crime because I think uh, where you allow that lower level uh, sort of behaviour to become the norm, you're almost setting your starting point at a, you know of what's acceptable at a much higher level, and then it's more you know it's easier for it to kind of escalate into things which you know are completely unacceptable because it's perceived as kind of normalised in a way so um, Is there a generational cycle with this? Um, I don't think that we've done enough in terms of the next generation coming through to be um, highlighting these issues and challenging these issues I remember uh, a school that I went to, to visit uh, a number of years back where you know girls were disclosing that actually they were kind of keeping their coats on during lessons because, you know, they didn't, you know, they, they were being sort of harassed by the boys um, about their bodies, that, you know, people were lifting their skirts. These sorts of things are still going on and they're almost so common that and so normal and not challenged in a really effective and robust way um, that that then, I think, perpetuates this kind of this sense of normality and this, you know, this, this sense of kind of what's, what's acceptable or not. So I think that there's much more that we need to do with this generation and generations coming behind in terms of, you know, what is, what is acceptable? What does a healthy relationship uh, look like? What is consent? And, you know, there, there have been a lot of quite good campaigns uh, around that. Um, and there is work going on in schools, but it needs to be, I think, you know, I firmly believe there needs to be a, 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 an offence of uh, misogyny being a hate crime to perhaps start tackling some of that as well. What I've noticed uh, as I'm just walking around Cardiff, uh, quite a few occasions, is that you will come across young people sometimes where a man is just screaming abuse at the woman. Mm -hmm in a way that seems to be without any sense of shame or embarrassment. Mm -hmm. And it also happens, um, I've noticed sometimes, where you've got this a young man who is speaking on a mobile phone, uh, obviously to his um, female partner, mm -hmm. and just coming out with an absolute tirade mm -hmm. of abuse where there are no expletives deleted. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is, it's quite chilling, actually, to witness that. Yeah. Why do these people think that it's acceptable to behave like that? I mean, I think that's it's difficult to explain why these people think that it's acceptable. Um, we know, for example, however, that you know people who have grown up in households where um, there have been abusive relationships are far more likely to 
uh, when they become adults to either be a victim or a perpetrator of, um, of, of violence and, and abuse. So I think a lot of this is intergenerational and is kind of cyclical. It's why I'm so passionate in my current role about tackling adverse childhood experiences. So they're defined as growing up in a household where there's domestic abuse, substance misuse, mental health problems or sort of parental separation or incarceration. And 14% of the Welsh population have grown up in households with four or more of those adversities. So that's that's a kind of, you know, toxic household in a way. And uh, for those young people, when they become adults, they are uh, the adults who are 20 times more likely to end up in prison. They're six times more likely to have a teenage pregnancy. They're, I think it's 15 times more likely to become uh, drug users themselves. I think it's something like 12, 11 or 12 times more likely to be victims or perpetrators of, um, of, of uh, violence. And so this is really about trying to get both into you know, schools and the education system in terms of what does a healthy relationship look like? Because for some of those uh, young, you know, the, those people, I'm sure that that way of speaking, behaving, acting is their normal because that's what they've grown up in. So it's about trying to you know, change perceptions and mindsets about what is normal, what is healthy. Schools have a role in doing that, but also we all as public services and you know, people who make policy have a role in terms of tackling those adversities in childhood so that they don't get passed on to the next generation. You're now doing quite a different job. Yeah. Uh, Future Generations Commissioner. How did that come about? Well, uh, obviously the the legislation was passed in 2015. I have always had this passion about um, us trying to do things differently in the public sector, could see um, that there's a better way of, of doing things, I guess, and the fact that Often the way that we did business, so our kind of short-term budget cycle, short-term ele- you know, electoral cycles, um, the fact that there's often this kind of protectionism around organisational boundaries, budgets and so on, and the fact that very often when we develop policy, we, you know, we don't actually speak to people that the policy is designed to you know, work for. And so I've always been passionate about those things. And so I think and the Future Generations Act um, was a kind of a moment in time, in a way, where um, Jane Davidson had uh, managed to secure this legislative, uh, this commitment in the in the manifesto. Um, it was at the same time as the Sustainable Development Goals were going through um, in terms of the United Nations. Those as concept, you know, sustainable development as a concept and the sustainable development goals seem completely remote to, you know, most people in terms of what difference is that going to make to anyone's lives. But I think where the Welsh Government were quite brave and clever was that they actually, one, put some definitions around that following, you know, what do we mean by these sustainable uh, development goals? What is the vision for the Wales that we want? And that was created following a huge conversation about the Wales that we want. And then put this kind of, you know, in order to get there, these are the five things that we need to do. We need to plan for the long term. We need to shift our resources to preventing problems from occurring in the first place. We need to work together with each other. We need to recognise that when we take decisions in one area, say on the economy, that that potentially has an effect on the environment. And we need to recognise and you know address and mitigate that. And crucially, we need to involve uh, people in this sort of decision making process. So that to me kind of completely spoke to everything that I've been passionate about in the rest of my career in, in public services so that's why I applied for the, the job. The thing is, it, the, the aspirations of the job, which are contained essentially in the Act, mm-hmm. uh, and then are translated into the role that you're performing. I, I remember speaking to people at the time when they were being formulated and they were getting into the public domain and people were saying things like, it's a load of waffle, this is just motherhood and apple pie mm-hmm. stuff. 
it doesn't really mean very much or it can mean anything you want it to mean. Mm -hmm. So I imagine that the task for you is to translate what can sound quite ethereal concepts mm -hmm. into something that actually works. Yeah. How are you going about doing that? Well, I think you're, you're right. It is incredibly challenging because the Future Generations Act covers the social, economic, environmental uh, and uh, cultural well-being of everyone in Wales now and everyone who isn't born yet. So that's kind of a, a huge task. And it's essentially, you know, it is a piece of legislation, but it's essentially a massive cultural change programme um, in the way that we do business in the, in the public sector. I think to start doing that, part of what we've got to do is to be uh, understanding where public services are at, where policymaking is at, where people, you know, how what people understand about their obligations in terms of the future, and also recognising some of the huge kind of constraints that they've got in changing the ways that they work. So some of the early things that I've been trying to do are not necessarily the the sexy things, but they're things that, that set the rest of the context so that um, the environment is one which um, allows people to, to get to a place where they're implementing the Act. So, as an example... Um, you know, the fact that our performance measures in the National Health Service probably work against the Act if they're focused on, you know, what was, your, what was the ambulance waiting time, what was the A&E waiting time. Actually, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have some indicators around that, but we should have indicators around, you know, how many people have we pre prevented coming, from a, uh, coming into A&E or needing an ambulance in the first place because we've taken different types of, um, of, of actions. So some of the things that I've been challenging government on are those performance measures. I've been challenging them, um, and this year um, in particular we'll be having a focus on how the government are going to demonstrate that they're shifting their own resources from dealing with the, the kind of the acute demand, the, the sort of, uh, you know, the crisis end, to shifting towards prevention. Now that's going to take the government to, you know, some difficult decisions. For the first time, they're actually starting to develop a definition of prevention, which is a starting point, because that will enable us to monitor where that money is, is shifting, and I will have a job um, in holding them to account as to whether it's shifting or not, as will the Auditor General. It's things like um, when we see, you know, uh, uh, where we are in terms of the decision-making on the M4, um, part of the process that um, led us to that decision was something called the WellTag guidance, which gives us guidance on, you know, on how we should consider transport schemes. That didn't apply the principles of the Future Generations Act, so we've been working with the Transport Department to make sure that that guidance now reflects that. And there are a myriad of other things where we need to be getting the infrastructure right so that the you know the conditions that people are operating in don't work against the act and that's not a short term kind of piece of work because you can imagine all of the different things that happened before the act that didn't embed its principles um, will take time to change the other thing that we're doing is trying to explore and explain in practical terms what are the things that you can do in your public body to kind of um, some of the smaller things initially, um, what we're calling kind of quick wins or no-brainers, and uh, you might have seen some of those in my reports. And one of the one of my favourite ones is around don't cut the grass. Sounds ridiculous in a way, but actually some public bodies are saying, Do you know what, we're going to stop cutting the grass, and instead of cutting the grass, we're going to plant wildflowers. And that's got a m number of kind of multiple wins because they're saving money because they're not cutting the grass. They're creating a more attractive... Uh, environment for uh, nature's bees in particular and we know that there are issues in the future in terms of you know the decline in the the bee population their wildflowers are actually attract uh, you know creating a more attractive environment you know for people people like that and as I said they're saving themselves money that's one really simple example it's not going to change the world I accept that but a really simple example of different ways of thinking and doing things that can have multiple wins if we just stop 
pause and think, is the way that we've always been doing things the right way or is there a better way? Let's look at the M4. There are those who would say, and I'd probably be one of them, that it does seem quite extraordinary that the government which passed the um, Wellbeing of Future Generations Act can be the same government that is promoting driving a new motorway through uh, what is uh, a very pleasant uh, rural landscape Mm -hmm. um, and quite an individual landscape, as I discovered when I went on a trip there a couple of weeks ago. It it leads to one to speculate that the um, original approach to the to the act to passing the bill to become an act was perhaps a bit tokenistic because if you pass a piece of legislation and then you come up with a plan to spend a great deal of money on something which appears to go completely against the principles of that act, it does call into question the sincerity of your original commitment to the the, um, the ideals that you've set out. Mm-hmm. Am I right or am I right? I think um, I think it's one of the reasons why um, I've seen this as a kind of you know an important uh, issue to put a marker down in terms of you know how I think the legislation should work. Um, I, you know the M4 project has been um, a long time in its kind of creation, so the last you know ten to to fifteen years, uh, and I'm guessing there are a lot of you know. Uh, work that's gone into that vested interest in making that um, making that a reality, um, and you know part of that decision making process was happening before the Future Generations Act was was passed. But I think you're right in that I'm not convinced that the uh, that the decision making process reflects the uh, the obligations under the Act. We've seen some of the arguments made in the public inquiry, which. I disagree with so this uh, concept that uh, because there is apparently although this is uh, questionable as well in my view uh, a positive impact on the economy through building a, 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 the M4 um, that uh, the negative impact on the environment uh, you know that's okay and what the legislation talks about is the overarching duty being to improve and that's the word improve the social, economic, environmental and cultural well-being of Wales. So I don't think you can have one area, the economy in this case, who is massively benefiting and, uh, you know, another area, the environment in this case, which is having a massive, you know, disbenefit, uh, if you like. Uh, and that's one of the fundamental areas where I think that um, the government need to look again um, at whether this is the um, whether this is the right decision, I also think that there's um, an issue here in terms of this you know concept of intergenerational equity. So, not only are we uh, proposing to build a road which you know has that negative impact on the environment, and, and you know, I think in terms of you know in terms of climate change, in terms of biodiversity, the steps that we are going to need to take to meet those eighty percent reductions in carbon emissions are absolutely huge and I don't think anyone really um, out there in the public policy world um, well particularly not those people who are kind of you know uh, our main decision makers um, really have uh, a very good idea of the scale of what's going to have to change in order to get us to to 80%. I am quite pleased that um, you know the government have got a a cabinet uh, group looking at that made up of the minister for you know cabinet secretary for finance environment economy and so on but um, when we're thinking about the future, that is going to be a massive, massive issue for uh, for future generations. And I'm not convinced that building another road actually is part of the solution to that. But not only that, not only are we um, doing perhaps some questionable things 
in terms of whether the policy itself is right, but we're actually asking our future generations to pay for it. Um, we're asking them to foot the bill of the borrowing for the 1.5 billion or up to 2 billion or whatever it might uh, become. So I think there is something there about this concept of intergenerational um, equity. And I think that, you know, when we look at some of the key trends around, you know, the proportion of young men in particular who were not even bothering to, to learn to drive, I've got an 18 year old, um, you know, he, uh, his uh, grandparents bought him, lucky boy, bought him a car for his 18th birthday. Do you know what? It's sat on the, the drive. Um, it's not been moved. He hasn't bothered to pass his test. Actually, he's quite happy um, getting the bus everywhere he goes. He's quite happy taking his skateboarding <laughs> to lots of places as well. And he wants to be able to walk places and he wants to have a reliable public transport system and he doesn't want to spend his money um, running a car. And I think that that's... Uh, where the future is going. So I think when we think about where would we invest £1.5 billion for, you know, to maximise its benefit to the whole of Wales and the social, economic, environmental and cultural wellbeing of Wales, I think there are far better investments to make. You're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. In terms of the changes in lifestyle that are going to be necessary to meet the carbon emission mm -hmm. reductions. Mm -hmm. Do you think that they are going to be sellable to the electorate? Because one thing that politicians always think about, those people who are responsible for making mm -hmm. decisions, is, is this going to damage my prospects of being re-elected? Mm -hmm. uh, do you think the public is ready for this? Um, I don't think, as I said, that very many people have a, a you know a, a good idea of the scale of the challenge ahead. But I do think that there are some areas where we, if we start to think differently now, we can find multiple wins. And for me, that's what the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act really requires us to do. So if we think about, you know, how could we um, be building houses which are carbon positive? That's happening in places like Sw uh, Swansea. It's happening through the Salsa House in um, in Neath Port Talbot. So. The multiple wins you get there, you obviously get the carbon uh, reductions from the, uh, you, you know, that house being carbon positive and, and, and not uh, releasing emissions, but instead, uh, you know, taking them in. You get positives in terms of people's um, heating and, you know, and, and electricity bills. Um, when we know it's about 23% of people living in fuel poverty in Wales, so you actually have financial benefits into people's pockets. Um, if you build those sorts of, you know, there are opportunities around creating apprenticeships for the future who are going to be the sorts of people who are working on that technology, can fit that sort of technology, can build houses to those standards. We need to be thinking now about how we invest in those sorts of apprenticeships, perhaps not our traditional um, approach to apprenticeships. So that's where I think you start seeing some potential win-win-wins. And I think those are the areas that we need to um, focus on and may well convince um, the electorate. But there's also, there's going to have to be some, I guess, some tougher measures to drive different types of behaviour. One of the things that has happened as a result of the Future Generations Act um, and their, their obligations to that is Cardiff Council, for example, consulting on congestion charging for Cardiff, making sure that they've got the right infrastructure in place and investing on the infrastructure for um, electric vehicles, for example. You know, there's issues that the metro, uh, the new metro procurement is looking at in terms of how they can work towards, a, you know, a zero carbon uh, transport system. So there are some really positive things happening, but um, some of those things will require, well, a lot of those things will require the kind of behaviour change from uh, from from the general public as well. Well, one thing being, of course, as you alluded to, your son making the decision uh, not to drive the car mm -hmm. that has been bought for him, 
Uh, I mean, do you think that people, generally speaking, are too wedded to their motor vehicles? Um, I think you've got to try and make it easy for people, haven't you? I suppose in some ways we're, we're simple souls and often we will opt for the you know the the easiest option which is why you've got to combine uh you know making things easier for people and possibly kind of you know penalizing or making other things more difficult to drive the right sort of uh behavior so you know some simple things you know it's it's frustrated me as i'm sure um it frustrates you and 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 you know most of the population of cardiff that until recently you know we didn't have a kind of you know an ability to pay by card when we were getting on the bus so you'd be scrabbling around for the change and you know that doesn't make a public transport system easy really simple stuff um you know better you know when it says on the real-time bus information that the number 24 is coming and and then it disappears into some black hole in in god knows where that's really frustrating let's try you know there's technology there that we can you know we could and should be using to drive the right sorts of behaviors and to encourage people but you've obviously you know that's my frustrations and i recognize those are my frustrations living in cardiff where actually the public sector you know the public transport network is pretty good in rural wales it's absolutely uh dire and you know if we're wanting to encourage people to you know leave their cars uh behind we really need to be um thinking about where perhaps investing in public uh transport could have multiple wins not just in terms of carbon in terms of people's access to jobs in terms of how you might reorganize your health service in terms of a whole range of things and i think those are the areas that we need to be focusing on in some areas, they've got these booker bus ideas, haven't yeah. they? which I know that Stuart Cole, the yeah. professor of transport, was uh, mm-hmm. very keen on. And I think that is working in some places, but it's not really anywhere near extensive enough. Because, as you say, there are vast areas in Wales where mm-hmm. public transport, local bus situation is really appalling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll jump on um, one of my favourite hobby horses now, which is the um, situation relating to the Cardiff um, bus station. Mm. Now, uh, we used to have a bus station which was right next door to the train station, which meant that there was uh, a very good link between those who were coming in on the train, Mm -hmm. they'd get straight onto the bus and go home, whatever. Um, Now we have a situation, uh, and this is lasting for a total of um, five years at least, where we don't have a bus station. Um, Plans have been announced for a bus station, but whereas the old bus station had... Uh, 34 stands the new one is going to have 14 Mm. Uh, so it's going to be much smaller much smaller actually than they've got in Newport and at present you have a situation where people are having to walk hundreds of yards to go from one uh, bus to another if they're going across uh, the city this sort of um, approach seems to send out an awful message to people you know when you're trying to persuade them to to give up their cars or to not use them as much and to use public Mm -hmm. transport um, why on earth is the council uh, following this particular route, do you think? Is it, is it because they had a big choice to make in the centre about are we really going to be massively pro-business and have these new buildings built in, uh, in the centre of Cardiff and basically uh, public transport systems, as far as the buses are concerned, can just go hang? I mean, is, is that been, has there been an element of that? You know, I can't uh, claim to know the ins and outs of Cardiff's uh, decision-making process. Obviously, that's you know one issue in one local authority, and you know there there are you know hundreds and thousands of decisions that are taken kind of every year by um, by different uh, uh, by different public bodies. Um, what I do think it uh, shows is that you know Cardiff need to be 
one thinking about the the sort of principles within within the act is is what they're proposing going to um, meet the long term uh, vision that they've set themselves on a kind of you know a low carbon uh, and well connected city. To what extent is it going to actually work for people who who have they talked to the average bus user? Have they talked to someone who's coming off the train from, you know, Manchester and is trying to work out how to get uh, to wherever they want to go in, in Cardiff? And, if, you know, if they haven't done that, then I think, you know, almost immediately the uh, the way in which services are implemented kind of, you know, run into trouble because if they don't work for people, then, uh, you know, then, then they're not going to be effective, are they? Um, but I also think that, you know, there are, uh, you know, there are other good things that Cardiff are, are doing, particularly in terms of their, uh, their, their plans around congestion charging and uh, cycle superhighways and the electric vehicle infrastructure. But, you know, they need to look at it in a holistic way and they need to make sure the public transport network is working for people and is going to have the best possible chance of enabling them to deliver on their aspirations uh, for, you know, for low carbon transport. It seems to me that uh, congestion charge is unavoidable. Because otherwise you're going to have a situation where the entire centre of the city is just going to be clogged up with traffic. Well, what Cardiff have done, um, again, as a result of the, the Future Generations Act, and we haven't seen these sorts of, uh, you know, this sort of long-term thinking coming before, um, is that they've uh, projected, you know, what the what car usage in, in Cardiff would be in sort of 5, 10, 15, 20 years' time if they carry on um, as they are. Um, I can't remember um, exactly what the figure was, but I think in 20 years' time it's projected that if we carry on as, as we are, it's going to be something like a 42% increase in, in, uh, in, in car journeys. Um, that's not good for business in all of the most progressive cities across uh, the world. Connectivity, good public transport um, is is important. Uh, it's really important in terms of in, in, you know attracting that, that sort of in, inward investment and jobs into the city. The other things that are kind of really important is is uh, you know what we sort of describe as the livability factors. So how nice a place is it to live and. That doesn't just mean that you know you've got a big shiny um, office block uh, to accommodate your uh, you know your your new jobs. Actually, attracting the jobs in the first place are going to be things like is is the city you know how green is the city? What sort of cultural offering um, does the does the city have? Is it a city which is absolutely clogged up with with air pollution? Um, you know what are the schools like in the city? All of those sorts of things. So this is where this kind of principle of, of integrated thinking within the uh, within the Future Generations Act is really important because if your aspiration and your long term objective is to is to uh, you know to get more jobs into Cardiff or you know or any other part of, of Wales, you need you can't just be focusing on traditional ways of doing that. You need to be looking at these whole range of um, of, of issues that are going to have an impact on that. In terms of people's attitudes as well, what I would say is that there is a significant part of the population that never considers travelling by public transport, and they're particularly opposed to travelling on buses. Um, I've even had, in the uh, not-too-distant past, some extremely critical comments made by colleagues about buses, um, where they seem to think that it's somehow beneath their dignity to travel on buses, and they have um, some very strange ideas about the people who do travel on buses. And I mean, I travel on the buses all the time, and um, I would be lost without Cardiff bus, quite honestly, uh, and also getting around Wales generally. You know, I travel a lot on public transport. I don't drive. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a phobia about it, as a matter of fact, mm-hmm. and I'm 
grave miscarriage of justice when I passed my driving test when I was at university many years ago. Um, but I used to get phased looking in the mirrors and it used to yeah. freak me out a bit. So I just thought, this is not for me. Yeah. And I think people ought to be able to live their lives without having a car. Yeah. And I cannot understand this mentality which does exist um, in Cardiff amongst some people that they have a complete antipathy to the idea of travelling on a bus as if it is something that is going to sort of drag them down to lumpen proletariat or something like that. I just find it really weird. Well, I also find that weird. Um, maybe that's an older generation, because certainly what I've seen from the, the younger generations is that that's where their head is at. You know, the bus is the most obvious thing to do. Um, my kids cycle everywhere they, um, they go. Um, that gives them, you know, the, the freedom that, that get, you know, enables me not to be, you know, mum who is, you know, mainly just a taxi driving um, service. And it's actually really good for their, good for their health. Um, some of the other things that I've been um, impressed with um, in terms of the way that people are using the, um, the legislation is um, there was a big piece of work done by the public health uh, lead on transport. Now, you wouldn't necessarily have seen those sorts of interactions and those sorts of, you know, two different organisations and disciplines kind of coming together this time three or four years ago. But for a public health professional to be saying, actually, you know, if we want to tackle, you know, the 26% of uh, children who are overweight or obese and the knocking 50% of, of, of adults, we want to tackle some of those issues which are going to be long-term issues for us. One of the best ways to do that is to be investing in public transport and active travel because you get people walking to the bus stop instead of jumping in their cars normally when we think about those things you know how do we tackle obesity you get a load of health professionals together and we're all talking about you know a sugar tax and you know and some of those things will be part of the solution but actually thinking beyond the traditional thinking beyond you know and outside of our silos into what are the other things that actually you know are going to drive those different types of behavior um, in people i think those are some of the exciting discussions that are starting to happen now and people tell me those discussions and i know for a fact those discussions weren't happening four or five years ago with the role that you've got sophie do you think you've got enough power what can you do if there is an organization which appears to you to be in obvious breach of mm -hmm. the act mm -hmm. what action can you take against it well, um, one of the um, things that certainly have you know have recognised as being a, a particular issue since I've begun the the role is that um, casework powers, if you like, were specifically excluded from the legislation. So people write to me, um, you know, to to object to particular things or to point out area, you know, on particular projects or issues where the act hasn't uh, been applied. I don't have the powers to intervene in those, you know, specific cases, and that's different to the Children's Commissioner or the um, the Older People's Commissioner or the the Welsh Language Commissioner. Now, um, in some ways, that's about an issue. Well, it's within the legislation, but also, I guess, if we were going to resource those issues, the resources in my office would have to be um, significantly um, significantly increased. But what I try to do is to identify where people are, are contacting me about particular issues, where you know I'm picking up through my interaction with public bodies. Uh, there are particular problems that I identify, you know, the, the more systemic issues. So one of the issues more recently that, that I've ad identified is around um, Natural Resources Wales and the extent to which they're using the Future Generations Act um, in their environmental permitting decisions. Now, that's come from a range of high-profile cases that people have contacted me about. I'm not able to tell Natural Resources Wales in this case or that case you must do these things uh, differently. What I am able to say is on a systemic level... 
I am making a number of recommendations around how you should be changing your environmental permitting process to better make it apply and comply with the, um, with the Act. I don't have powers to stop things happening and I can't force people to do things. The, um, I suppose the, the most stick-like uh, power within the legislation is the power of review. So I can review a public body, a collection of public bodies I can review on a particular um, issue and I can make recommendations coming from those reviews which public bodies um, have a duty to follow unless they can outline an alternative course of action, reasons why they cannot follow those uh, recommendations. How many times have you done that? So um, I've threatened those review powers on a number of occasions, but fortunately... Is that behind the scenes? That is behind the, the scenes, but fortunately the public bodies concerned have uh, worked with me to get us to the, same, uh, to the same place. I'm not at all afraid of using those review powers where necessary. But I do think in the first two years of the legislation, this is a huge change for the way things, uh, you know, the way that we do business... Um, there are all of these other things, these kind of com- competing and conflicting things that were already in existence, which are perhaps working against the Act, like I've described, you know, how we do our budgets, how we ma- you know, measure performance, um, you know, other pieces of policy and guidance which don't necessarily reflect the Act. So I think in the early days, um, it's important for us to try and break down some of those things that might be stopping the Act happening, build up the understanding out there and the people who are trying to implement it on what it actually means to be implementing it, including giving some really good, you know, good examples and case studies, and where I need to, to be uh, you know, challenging more, more robustly. But I, um, I expect now, you know, the, the sort of, I suppose, the, the strap line that I've been using or thinking about in this, um, in, you know, from the, the last month or so, as we're, you know, we've approached the second year anniversary of the legislation, is that Elvis song, um, a little less conversation, a little more action, please. Um, and I will be looking to use my powers as commissioner to, in the right way, drive that action. Do you think there are still people in the public sector who just don't get it? Of course, of course there is. Just by producing um, a piece of legislation, it's not going to you know, overnight change the habits of, of a lifetime. But... What, uh, you know, and that's back to, you know, how have our public sector workers been trained? How are, how do we do accountancy, which is kind of like about, you know, managing your annual budget rather than thinking, you know, to the to the long term? The extent to which, you know, if you think about um, the, the NHS and medical professionals, they've come up through the discipline of medicine. They haven't necessarily, you know, perhaps they might be wise to be spending some time in terms of environmental services, social services, housing, because all of those things, you know, about, I think it's about 85% of, um, you know, our health and kind of well-being is not actually dependent on health care services, medical services, is dependent on, you know, what they call the social determinants of health. So the way that we've done business for a long time has perpetuated and encouraged this kind of silo mentality, short-term thinking and so on. So just by having legislation, you're not going to change that. What I do recognise, however, that there are these people out there in the public sector, and I would probably describe myself as, uh, as one of them over the course of my career as well, who I would describe as frustrated champions. So they can see that there's a better way of doing things. They can see that the way that we've been doing things is not getting to the root cause of the problem, and actually they're just going to be picking up the pieces again in a few years' time and, and so on. But the system in which they operate, the budgets they have to work with, um, the audit and risk arrangements that they um, have to sort of comply with, um, make it very difficult to challenge that. What those people are telling me is that the Future Generations Act is get, giving them permission to challenge the system and change the system, and I think that's really powerful. On the other side of the equation, aren't there still around quite a lot of people 
who perhaps are business focused or focused on the economic development of Wales who would just see you as a bit of a nuisance? Well, that, you know, that may be the case, but in all sectors, we need to change the way that we're thinking. We can't operate in our, you know, just thinking within our own uh, sector or our own silo, because, you know, when I think about, um, you know, economy versus environment, um, actually, you know, yes, we all want good, you know, more good quality, decent jobs, but there are no jobs on a dead planet. So it's really important that we're thinking about these things holistically because, you know, and a number of, um, you know, private sector companies and organisations are actually at the forefront of anticipating some of the ways that they're and making changes that they need to make in order to meet, for example, some of the environmental challenges of the future. It's why we're seeing technology like the, you know, like the Salsa House being developed. And I think we need to be, you know, recognising that and celebrating that a bit more. A couple of weeks ago, I was, um, actually a couple of months ago, sorry, I was, I met a a young woman who's regarded as one of the leading up and coming uh, scientists um, in the the world, actually. She's a, a physicist in LSE. And she'd just come back from, um, you know, a Google camp with the brightest and the best from across the world. And um, she said to me, oh, where are you from? Oh, Wales. I said, oh, she said, Wales. The most exciting thing I've seen recently is in Wales. And I sort of said, yeah, well, you know, what's that? It's the Salsa House. It's at, the technology is amazing. Why aren't you selling that? Why aren't you grasping that um, and selling that to the rest of the world? Um, and I think there's something about how we, as a nation embrace, encourage, promote um, and invest in those sorts of things which are going to help the economy, help the environment and help people rather than perhaps taking traditional approaches in the way that we've always done. I think it would be wrong to end this podcast without referring to somebody that you work with very closely uh, who was very instrumental in getting the Act uh, passed in the first place and with whom you worked uh, closely um, uh, when he was in the cabinet, uh, Carl Sargent, what would you say about the contribution that he made to the policy areas that you focused on? Well, um, Carl Sargent was was the minister who's taken the most legislation through, and I think what is interesting in the approach that he took and that I saw in him doing that is that he was someone who could bring people together. He could. He was someone who could. You know, was a kind of fierce but friendly negotiator and um, you know could make things happen and you know I was particularly proud to work with him on the Violence Against Women Act it was something that he was passionate about that I'm absolutely passionate about and I think that there's probably still some issues in terms of its implementation but you know these things take time but it's um, you know something that I'm proud of I think in terms of the Future Generations Act um, you know, you referred to how when it was first conceived, people were sort of saying, well, what on earth is it? People don't understand necessarily this concept of, you know, sustainable uh, development. And I think he was the minister who was able to turn that into something which, whether you're the first minister or a bus driver, the well-being of your children, your grandchildren and their great-grandchildren um, is something you've got to care about. And I think that's how he was able to communicate it. And that was one of his greatest skills. What do you think his legacy will be? He's passed this internationally groundbreaking piece of legislation and, you know, when I was 
looking at the, uh, the passage of the legislation when I was in the process of applying for the, uh, for the job and, and before, I recognised that it um, had a lot of international interest, but it wasn't until coming into this role that, you know, that, that I realised just the, the scale of that. So there are countries across the world who are looking to what we're doing here in Wales. Uh, my team has been talking to the New Zealand government in terms of Jacinda Ardern's uh, uh, thinking around um, embedding well-being into their budget process. Been talking to uh, to Finland in terms of some work that they want to do around that. There's a, a campaign now being led by the royal family in the in the Netherlands around having a similar piece of of legislation. Uh, the Scottish government are showing a lot of interest. So. That puts a lot of pressure on us to make sure that this groundbreaking piece of legislation that we've passed isn't just a, a piece of legislation which sets out a number of kind of aspirational things, but is actually driving action on the ground. That's my role, but that's not my role alone. Government need to play a huge part in, in making sure that this legislation they passed has the resources, drive and commitment from them to make it work. There was a time not that long ago when you had aspirations to become a politician. You... Um, put yourself forward uh, to be selected as a candidate in Cardiff North for the 2015 general election. You didn't get selected on that occasion. Do you still have political ambitions? No, I think perhaps for uh, you know for some period of time I was sort of you know uh, a politician in rehabilitation, and uh, I, and I uh, remain someone who has aspirations in terms of trying to change the way that we do things here in Wales, trying to make things better and indeed more kind of you know fit for the future. But I think I've got lots of opportunities to do that outside of the uh, political sphere and um, I certainly don't have those party political aspirations but I have you know political aspirations in terms of the way that we do policy um, here in Wales and I hope that I can make some contribution to changing that. And when people say and some people do that you got your job because you're some kind of Labour stooge how would you respond to that? Um, I think that I would say look at the things that I've done previously that it would be difficult, you know, uh, difficult for a Labour uh, stooge to get a job uh, through an appointment process that was uh, done by a cross-party panel um, of Assembly members who scored me and whoever the other candidates uh, were as well. Um, and I think that in some ways my challenge back to that as well is, you know, judge me by, by, judge me by what I do, um, but also I think to do a job like this you need to know how the system works it's actually quite helpful knowing that. It's quite helpful sometimes knowing where some of the bodies are, are buried and some of the things that are going to be the right levers to, to pull or the wrong levers to pull or um, you know how you actually get change uh, within a system. And I've worked at um, you know almost every level of, um, of government. I've worked uh, parliament, I've worked in the police service, a non-devolved public body. Um, I've worked in an NDPB, as, as they were called, the, uh, in the um, Equal Opportunities Commission. Quango. I've Yeah, a Quango. I've worked in uh, local government as, as a councillor, and I've worked in Welsh government itself. So I think that gives me a really good holistic view of how the organisations, which ultimately I am trying to influence, how they actually operate. Because without that knowledge and understanding, it's really difficult. You're starting, you know, you're starting from a, a more difficult place at the outset if you don't understand how some of those organisations work. Thanks very much indeed, Sophie. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.